Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Birth rates in the United States have been on a relatively constant and significant downward trajectory since the 1950s. While medicine has improved in the field of infertility, many still struggle with the issue. Our focus today is fertility and women in medicine. Join me for an informed discussion of a topic which does not receive enough attention, next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Jenna Miller. Dr. Miller practices pediatric critical care medicine. She is also author of Navigating Your Fertility as a Woman in Medicine. Jenna Miller, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. As you know, this is the podcast of the American Association for Physician Leadership. Before we discuss your book, could you please describe your journey as a physician leader? Absolutely. I went to medical school and residency here in Kansas City at the University of Kansas and then Children's Mercy Kansas City for pediatrics. And then I went to Texas Children's in Houston to complete my pediatric critical care training and then was lucky enough to come back home to Kansas City. And I've been practicing here for 10 years. So originally in my leadership roles, I started as associate director of the fellowship program and then became the fellowship director. And so I was in those roles for nine years. Currently, I'm now serving as the ECMO director. But during my time as fellowship director, I really started to understand more the needs of my trainees kind of in tandem with my own story of fertility or infertility as it turned out. And so I understood that we were not doing a great job with preparing people for navigating this road in a profession where our trainees are graduating and starting their families at a later age than the general population. And so that's how I really came to be interested in starting advocacy work in this field surrounding fertility for our colleagues in medicine. Great. So as we mentioned, your book is Navigating Your Fertility as a Woman in Medicine. And I I think you were starting to get to this uh, place, but maybe you could tell us how you came about writing the book. So a disclaimer, I'm not a reproductive endocrinologist. I leave the medical decision-making to the patients and their physicians and the expertise that our colleagues have in that field um, around the guidance and medication regimen is not something I'm wishing to emulate. Um, I'm more here to be an advocate for awareness um, to the basic biology that you would think we would all have learned and gained knowledge about in medical school, as well as what to expect in non-traditional ways to form a family that many of the women and people in medicine have come to find they are needing. Um, And so really the, the goal of this book was to share my own personal experience, which spanned seven years in the reproductive endocrinology world, and which has finally led to the pregnancy in a gestational carrier for me, and I'm due next month, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but to share that experience along with the evidence that I have uh, read along the way, information that I've received and learned from my experiences in these clinics, um, all in one resource for people to have as a, a beacon or a guideline or a kind of a, a map to how to navigate 
what is an entirely new world of vocabulary and treatments. Well, I need to start by saying congratulations. That's exciting news. Um, let's dig in a little bit more to the um, statistics or, or, or background. How many mm -hmm. people are currently dealing with infertility in the United States? And how does that compare with the number of uh, physicians? Got a general population versus? It's a really good question. So the most recent numbers on the CDC website are one in five or 19% are unable to get pregnant after a year of trying, which is the definition of infertility for those, than, for those less than 35. Those greater than 35, it's more than six months of trying without conceiving. And additionally, they add in that people who have trouble getting pregnant and maintaining a pregnancy is one in four in the general population. So kind of combining those two uh, what can be problems for people to carry a pregnancy to term. And sometimes people think this is only a problem that affects those who are first time uh, moms. However, those who are going on to have a second or third or how many ever pregnancies after that also experience this in the general population and up to 14% of those have difficulty in getting pregnant or carrying a pregnancy to term. So it is not just for first time parents. Um, to have this experience, but it can also be for people who have already carried a pregnancy successfully. So this can affect both, I suppose. So it's, it's not accurate to assume if you've carried before that you're not having trouble with this again later. And so commonly with physicians, there's data from a 2016 paper that suggests one in four graduated female physicians experience infertility. And a lot of Women, um, there's a Women in Medicine Summit, there's the American Medical Association for Women Physicians, um, often quote that, that data. But since that time in 2017, there's been a study about OBGYN residents that states 29% of them report infertility. And in 2021, for our female surgeons, 25% of them report infertility. And so this number seems pretty well validated across multiple you know, reputable studies that are peer reviewed. Um, and so over the last seven years, these numbers seem pretty static. Um, however, in recent times, the CDC numbers have gone up by 5% in the general population. So they previously were reporting 14% and now report 19%. Um, and so it is possible that this trend is going to appear in papers for our colleagues that are more recent, um, but we haven't seen uh, that that uptick to you know 30% just quite yet. However, if we did see that in our colleagues, then we're talking about closer to one in three of our female professionals who are experiencing wow. infertility, which is obviously very concerning um, when we think about over half of our workforce to be in medical schools is now women. Absolutely. So what are some of the differences in how physicians experience pregnancy as compared to uh, members of the general population? So we think about traditional re residency and fellowship paths for those who you know went through college and then went to med school, went straight into residency and fellowship. We're talking about late 20s, early 30s. Um, and this overlaps with typical childbearing years. Um, and as we also know, the rigor of these programs sets trainees apart from their same age counterparts and lead to higher average age of first pregnancy than the general population by about four years. We've really not placed a focus on this historically when we're talking about supporting the reproductive health in our field. Um, however, as I mentioned earlier, over 50% of our medical school classes are now women. And so when we're talking about protecting our workforce 
in the future, it's really important that we provide this knowledge and awareness and planning for half of our or over half of our workforce to be. And so we think about, well, who's in charge of, of that planning and how do we how do we access those trainees? We often think about the ACGME. So in 2021, the ACGME surveyed their program directors. And of those that responded, two thirds of them had never been approached about trainee fertility concerns and about two thirds of them didn't know their institution's practices on insurance coverage for infertility. And so that's a two way street. That's some communication from the trainees and that's some, you know, to do with the program directors and the institutions. Um, and many employees or employers uh, may not be aware of these types of things for their employees. But as I said, our field has specific challenges that I think makes this extremely important for us to broach in a more um, in an open dialogue. Infertility is associated with factors that lead to early attrition from our field. So we know that we lose some of our female workforce within seven years of them completing their training. And burnout related to infertility is sometimes pointed to as part of that attrition. So it's important for us to address that. And um, how are their pregnancies different? So our colleagues experience not only higher infertility rates than the general population, but also higher miscarriage rates. And our female surgical colleagues have almost twice the miscarriage rate and risks of pregnancy complications. Um, and then additionally, as far as mental health goes, those who deliver during a residency and our surgical colleagues have higher rates of postpartum depression. That's interesting and sad. Um, what are some typical ages that physiologic changes occur in the reproductive system and how can a woman be proactive in preserving her fertility? So I referred to the CDC earlier as far as having information available to this, but obviously the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists or ACOG and the Society of Assisted Reproductive Therapy or SART, I'll have this data on their websites and I'll reference their websites now when I'm talking about the biologic clock as people often refer to it. Um, so we're kind of led to believe by society that we can all do everything anytime, um, just the same as everyone else. As an independent single woman, I liked to believe that. And I've been, I think, a very productive and successful professional. But there are some things that we have to, I think, accept and support as part of our natural biology. And in order to have full gender equity, leadership and female empowerment in our field, I think we have to recognize that this is a contributor to some of the inequity that we see across the board in leadership positions um, editors of journals, deans of medical schools. Um, so this is really important. And so when I say that we have to identify and support this difference that we have, it is so that we can achieve the equity in our field. Um, and so with that, the facts. So our pre-productive year, reproductive years are late 20s, early 30s, our prime training years. And so by age 30, our fertility starts to decline with more rapid declines by mid thirties. And then when you're over 40, chances of a natural pregnancy become much lower. Our ovarian reserve dictates how likely our chances of achieving a pregnancy are. And so this measures the number of eggs or oocytes um, we have available to us during any reproductive cycle. And as we age that number and the quality of what's there decreases. A number of factors can affect uh, the ovarian health apart from age. 
genetic history, stress, and environmental exposures, but age is the most obvious one across the board. And so with this info, if you want to be proactive about fertility preservation or people commonly talk about freezing your eggs, you are looking to potentially do that before the age of 30, which is during residency for people on a traditional path. And certainly doing it after age 30 is reasonable. However, there is a reason that the egg donors uh, that are um, donating to sites across the country are usually in their 20s. So in my book, I encourage those who wish to have a family and don't have a current plan to consider evaluating their fertility and exploring preservation during training or even in medical school. And so I think medical school is a big place where we can at least raise the issue for our trainees and just put it on their radar as, yes, you're busy now, you're focused, you're studying, and that's excellent. But keep this in your mind because it can sneak up on you and it, it commonly does. Um, obviously, during training during medical school, preservation or fertility treatments is complicated by financial and scheduling difficulties. And less than half of the states in the US provide mandatory fertility coverage. Although there's a new federal law that federal employees have to have coverage. So if someone has a federal employee partner, that may help those who fall in a state that don't get coverage. Um, and then the rigor of fertility treatment can really not be overstated. There are physical tolls, emotional tolls that I really don't have time to get into right now. Um, and there are time requirements that are inflexible and our job is also inflexible. So you put these two inflexible things together and it's very difficult. Um, and that can just be very stressful in and of itself with the scheduling. So all of this rigor, I think, should be supported in our profession. Um, if we are trying to make reachable goals of keeping our workforce um, and not having workforce shortages and the attrition that we've been seeing within that workforce from our uh, female colleagues. In your book, Navigating Your Fertility as a Woman in Medicine, you talk about how to select a clinic. And I'm interested not only in how someone should select a clinic, but also for women in medicine, if there are privacy issues that may be not faced by members of the general public. Could you comment on that? So for the privacy issue, I mean, the general HIPAA rules apply. So your physicians aren't allowed to speak to other people about your treatments. But in busy clinics in cities, no matter how big, you may run across people you know. And I think that is, that is a reality and I have certainly experienced that. I've been very open about my infertility journey, but certainly there are many people who are not and that is also very acceptable and very respectable. And I don't know if there's a way around that really, to be honest, apart from speaking with your physician about you know, trying to get the earliest appointments or times that are less busy. Um, but when you're in a cycle, they, I mean, they are very regimented about everyone in this cycle is coming at this time. And so you're all pretty much overlapping there in the clinic. So I think that is a bit difficult to, to avoid um, being seen in a clinic, uh, especially if your city only has one or two available to you. And so on that note, as far as how many are available to you, that's kind of the first thing you want to think about when you're trying to decide if and when you should seek treatment at one of these clinics. Depending upon where you live, the options will vary. So in the book, there's a chapter dedicated to finding clinics and preparing for treatment. 
And so first you want to really just identify which clinics are in your city or in close driving distance. What is even available to you? Certainly there are some people who have chosen to travel for, for treatment, and that is also very reasonable depending upon your situation. But if you're just starting out, looking in your own city and close driving distance is a good place to start. The outcomes for these clinics should be reported on multiple websites. Um, the CDC and the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology track this. Um, and so it should be readily available information to you um, as far as their outcomes in a variety of different treatments. It's important, and I really can't stress this enough, it is important to find a clinic who communicates effectively with you. So we know our workday can be a bit unreliable, right? So we can be chaotic, there might be emergencies. Um, and so your clinic has to be able to communicate with you effectively, meaning are they a clinic that will only do phone calls and they must speak to you direct directly? Do they only use online portals? Do they respond to emails in a timely manner? So they've got to be flexible, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And, and some clinics have certain ways that they communicate and getting outside of that is difficult. So I would encourage people to ask in what way the clinic communicates so that you can be sure you get the information you need in a timely fashion. You'll want to discuss finances, so the clinics themselves can investigate your insurance, but you can also do that yourself to try to understand what benefits you have, if any, and you may have benefits for therapy, you may have benefits for drugs, you may have no benefits for either, or you may have a one-time benefit, and so the things can, the insurance can vary quite widely um, between different carriers, different states, and different types of, of treatment, and so I currently I'm working through my first pregnancy via a gestational carrier. Her insurance covers her pregnancy currently. My insurance covers nothing related to that. Um, we had an insurance scare where she might lose her insurance and the insurance that she would then get wouldn't cover her pregnancy. So, you know, there was a lot of fear kind of midway through pregnancy about if the rest of the pregnancy was going to be covered for her. So, so there are a lot of different intricacies between the, the policies. And so I would definitely encourage you to look into that and the clinics can help you do that. And then also what types of um, payment strategies do they have? Do they have resources for um, reproductive loan services um, or fundraising? There's a variety of different things that can supplement this. Um, and so being creative uh, can be something that your clinic might have resources for. And then lastly, I'll just say that um, some clinics, especially very busy ones, can have long waits on the order of months, six months, sometimes even out to a year. So if you start thinking this might be something you are interested in, getting on the wait list, I think, is pretty low risk. If you decide you don't want to do that or you don't want to travel that route or you come up with a different plan, then you can always cancel it. But as I mentioned earlier, time is important. Um, and so if this occurs to you as something you might want to do, then just taking a look around, asking friends, more people than you know will have information or advice on which clinics are good, if you're comfortable asking, of course. Um, and so just getting on a list um, and kind of doing your research and your homework, maybe reading a couple chapters out of the book. There's some great to-do lists in there too. Um, can be helpful to you to kind of get the process going. Fabulous uh, ad advice, some important information there. As we finish our time together uh, today, I wanna ask about 
the uh, option of adoption. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Absolutely. Non-traditional family building discussions are not complete without a visit into the adoption world. And so many people commonly say just adopt when people are faced with issues in their fertility or the inability to conceive. Adoption is without a doubt very meaningful and successful for many people, and I absolutely support those on that journey. And I also was on that journey for a year and a half, almost two myself. And so that is how I have the following information. There's a reality to adoption that we should talk more frankly about. It comes with a long process. You have to be approved and it can also come with heartache. So just very briefly, in order to be approved for adoption, you have to have an agency. So you have to find one, vet one, sign a contract, complete a home study, which is an evaluation that does a deep dive into your financial, psychological, and physical well-being to ensure that you can provide a stable home for an adopted child. Additionally, someone physically comes into your home to inspect it and make sure that it is fit for a child, which I understand all of those steps to the process. It can feel very invasive though. And why do I have to prove that I am a fit parent? Um, and it can be just kind of an additional injury to already difficult situation, I think. Or um, So I just like to warn people about that, that those things can feel, like I said, kind of invasive. Additionally, you will need to make a profile about your family or you if you're single, um, and that is something that gets shared with birth mothers or birth parents. Um, and so to do all of that process, uh, in addition to education, can take many months. Um, and so planning for that in advance, again, like we are all planners and many of us are type A, um, take some time, some research, and some intention. That is good to know, and I did not realize the process was that involved. Uh, thank you for that information. I have one more little statement, and then if you use it or you put it somewhere, sure. a little sound, sound bite, whatever you want. I just Absolutely. threw it Go at right the ahead. end here real quick. So sure. my goal is to shed light on a topic that often remains in the dark and to let you know that you are not alone if you are considering fertility treatments or adoptions. There are many options available, and pursuing them early will increase your chances for success. So if you are interested in step-by-step -step introduction to navigating your fertility, please check out my book. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, the book, again, is Navigating Your Fertility as a Woman in Medicine. The author is Dr. Jenna Miller. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. Thank you so much. My thanks to Jenna Miller, her willingness to step forward and discuss a difficult topic to help fellow physicians is an act of leadership and kindness. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. 
We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Rizzuto had his holy cow, that man Robin.